Well, we are going to get into a new teaching series, and you can see by the slide and you can see by your bulletin that our new teaching series is called Outbreak. And so we are going to use the metaphor of an outbreak of an infectious disease to talk about the kingdom of God. All right, so if I've got any germaphobes in here, you're probably going to be a little uncomfortable, all right? I'm just giving you, uh, you know, our, uh, our hand sanitizer dispensers right over there. So if you start weirding out at any point, you just go sanitize and you're going to be okay. All right, but um, we want to talk about outbreak and you can see the, the tagline underneath it. What you have is worth catching. So let's talk about this. First, I wanted to have an actual scientific definition of an outbreak. And so I looked it up and this is what we have. A disease outbreak is the occurrence of cases of disease in excess of what would normally be expected in a defined community, geographical area, or season. An outbreak may occur in a restricted geographical area or may extend over several countries. It may last for a few days or weeks or for several years. It may also be a disease that has never infected humans before or that had long been absent. In fact, a lot of outbreaks that start will generally start because a disease gets transferred from an animal to a human for the first time. And then once it's in a human, then those pathogens begin to spread. You guys remember not too long ago the swine flu. You know, we can talk about yellow fever, which is transmitted in Africa by mosquitoes. And it's that transmission from a human to an animal. But basically what you have is an infectious disease. And that infectious disease is caused by pathogens, right? A pathogen could be a, a virus, a bacteria, a parasite. But what makes it contagious is how easily it can be spread from one person to another. Maybe if it's airborne and it can easily be spread because it's floating in the air or it can live for long periods of time on certain surfaces and so that makes it easy to transfer or whether it transfers through bodily fluids or things of that nature. But an outbreak is when the occurrence is above and beyond normal. You have the normal spread of disease, right? We have, uh, we've, we've been hit hard by the flu here, and, and so that would be an outbreak of the flu. We normally expect a little bit of the flu, but when we get a lot of the flu, that is an outbreak. We normally expect some disease, but when a major infectious disease begins to spread quickly or more than what is expected. Think about some of these historical outbreaks. The plague of Justinian in 541 A.D., you may have heard of it as the bubonic plague. At that time in history, killed half the population of Europe in one year. At that time, the population of Europe was 50 million. That means 25 million people died in one year from the bubonic plague. There was the Black Plague in the 1300s, which stretched from Asia all the way through Europe and killed more than 75 million people. The first cholera outbreak happened in 1816. It started in India, and then it spread to Indonesia, and it also spread north to Russia. And over an eight-year period, that outbreak of cholera killed over 40 million people. There was the Spanish flu of 1918 that killed over 50 million people in one year. The smallpox outbreak in the early 1900s, until the vaccine was developed in 1955, almost 500 million people were killed by smallpox. The ongoing tuberculosis pandemic 
Even though there is effective treatment for tuberculosis, it's still killing over one and a half million people every year. And you say, all right, pastor, why are you freaking us out talking about all these diseases? Because I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God and what Jesus had in mind when he came to the earth. If you've got your Bibles with you, let's go to Mark chapter 4. And let's see this metaphor that Jesus uses to discuss the kingdom of God, starting in verse 30. And Jesus said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. And so he says, think about the mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds in the garden plants. He says, but when you sow it and it begins to grow, the plant that grows is actually the largest of all the garden plants. Now, mustard is an herb, and normally when we think of herbs, we think of plants that only grow like a foot off the ground, and then we trim them and dry them, and we use them to season our food. But the mustard plant actually grows to be about 10 to 12 feet high. And its branches grow so thick that birds can actually land on it and it won't bend over under the weight of the birds. And so what Jesus is saying is that something that starts very small will slowly spread until it becomes something much bigger than you ever expected. And when he refers to the birds nesting in it, he's actually calling upon Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel that whenever they prophesied about the birds, they were referring to experiencing and enjoying the blessings of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is going to start out tiny, but it's going to grow and spread, and it's going to continue to grow and spread so that even though it started small, it's going to become something huge. So think about this. The kingdom of God started with one small seed, and that small seed was Jesus himself. He was God who incarnated as a human being and lived among us and died for us and rose from the dead victorious. And at the time that Jesus ascended to heaven, he had 120 followers. After three years of ministry, he had gathered 120 people who followed him. Now those 120 people, after Jesus ascended, proceeded to turn the Roman Empire upside down. A little over 100 years later, in A.D. 150, those 120 people had become 40,000. Now there were 40,000 followers of Jesus. 50 years later, in A.D. 200, there was approximately 220,000 followers of Jesus. By 300 A.D., the followers of Jesus represented 10% of the Roman Empire. And 10% may not sound that significant, but you've got to keep in mind, during those 300 years, the Roman Empire was doing everything they could to snuff out Christianity. 
They made it illegal. They began to arrest Christians. They tortured them. They murdered them. They would throw them to the lions in a stadium full of people, and everybody would celebrate as the lions ate them alive, and then they would take their heads and put their heads on sticks and drive them in the ground as a warning. They would capture Christians, tie them to sticks, and then burn them alive at nighttime, and they would be the human candles that would light the streets of Rome. For 300 years, Rome did everything they could to wipe out Christianity and yet the seed kept growing fast forward to today today 2.2 billion people declare themselves to be followers of Jesus and that's counting Catholics, Protestants evangelicals, 2.2 billion people and that sounds like a lot of people and so the kingdom of God has continued to spread and there's a lot of people but we have to keep in mind one, the Bible clearly says that not everybody who declares Jesus is necessarily going to heaven because you could do a lot of things for Jesus but if it's not genuine the other thing we have to think about is that still only represents 30% of the population of the earth. That means there's still somewhere around 4.5 billion people on this planet that if they were to die today, they would be spending eternity in hell. And so I want this picture of the kingdom of God spreading. And so what a picture of spread would be the outbreak of disease. And so Mark who is an agricultural scientist, but Mark is on our staff, he introduced me this week to the disease triangle. This is something that agricultural scientists use when they're discussing the spread of disease amongst plants, but I believe that it also applies to the spread of disease amongst human beings. And that is that you need three components for the spread of a disease. And when those three components combine together, you'll see in the middle of the diagram, that's where the disease is spread. And so what we need is we need a pathogen, but we need a virulent pathogen. What does that mean? It's a pathogen that's alive. It's one that's able to be spread. And then we need a susceptible host. Right? We need a, a body that is able to receive that pathogen, and that pathogen is able to grow and multiply within that body. And then we need a favorable environment. So amongst plant scientists, when they're talking about environment, they're referring to things like heat and moisture and acidity of the soil and all of those things that would create the right environment for that pathogen to be able to survive transferring from one body to another. And when you have all three of those things, you have the potential for disease to be spread. So let's look at this, and this is in your notes. So first off, a virulent pathogen... We're going to rephrase that and call that a living pathogen because nobody uses the word virulent in normal conversations, all right? So um, let's use the word living pathogen, all right? For the, the spread of a disease, we need a living pathogen. And so for the spread of the kingdom of God, there needs to be something inside of us that's alive that we can spread. And what is that? It is the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus said, he said, you know, people are saying the kingdom is here or the kingdom is over there or what are the signs of the kingdom? And Jesus said, no, the kingdom of God is inside of you. 
So that when you make the decision to follow Jesus, that God supernaturally removes you from the kingdom of darkness and puts you into the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God comes alive inside of you. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a living pathogen inside of you that is worth spreading. What does the kingdom of God inside of you look like? It looks like the love of Christ that is spilling out of your life. It looks like the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work in your life. It looks like the truth of the Word of God that your life is built upon and that you declare without shame or without embarrassments. We are carriers of an active pathogen. The second thing we need is a susceptible host. And so we're going to rephrase that as a receptive heart. For us to spread the living pathogen that's inside of us, we need to interact with somebody who has a receptive heart. God is going to bring people into your life that are open to the gospel, that are at a season in their life where they're ready to make a new decision. They want to see a transformation, but they don't know how to go about it until they come into contact with you and experience the pathogen that's inside of you. And the third component, a favorable environment, we're going to rephrase that, a kingdom environment. So when you're around people and when you're creating a kingdom environment around you, what is that? That's when you're loving people like they've never been loved before. That's when you're creating an atmosphere of grace and forgiveness when people would never expect it. You're bringing a kingdom environment. And so if we would have a living pathogen inside of us, we are creating the environment, and then we are encountering people that are receptive to the gospel, we're going to see the kingdom of God spread. And we're going to see this outbreak continue. And so with that in mind, I've, I've, I developed this proposition, and we put it in your notes there, and that is this. For the kingdom of God to spread... Jesus' followers need to live out their faith in close relationships with unbelievers. For the kingdom of God to spread, Jesus' followers need to live out their faith in close relationships with unbelievers. What does that mean? That means we can't just lock ourselves in a building and pray and pray and pray and just hope that if we pray enough, God will draw a bunch of people in off the streets and they'll come to our church and they'll just walk in going, we don't even know why we're here, but God told us to come in here. Now, that would be awesome if that happened, but that doesn't usually happen. What happens is that we go out and we live our lives on purpose, engaging in close relationships with unbelievers. And in those close relationships with unbelievers, we're living out our faith in a genuine way which means we're living righteously, which means we're showing grace and forgiveness, which means we're declaring the gospel and the truth of God's word, which means we're, 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 we're living and loving in a way that the world has never seen before. And if we would live that way, the kingdom of God would begin to spread. Now, the church as a whole, we, I think we struggle sometimes because we don't have balance. We just tend to swing the pendulum one way or the other. And so I gave my life to Christ in 1999, so I've been following Jesus for 20 years now. And shortly after I gave my life to Jesus, I became a youth pastor. And at that time in youth ministry, the way they taught you how to do youth ministry is if you got a teenager to actually show up to your youth group, and then you got them to give their lives to Jesus, the first thing you would tell them is, stop hanging out with all of your old friends. Find some Christians to hang out with and cut off all your old friends. 
And then they'd be coming to our church for a while, and then we would, we would get fired up about evangelism, so we would tell our teenagers, hey, go invite your friends to church. And then they'd be super confused. They'd be like, what friends? You told me to bail on all of them. And we got this idea that we needed to separate ourselves from everybody who was an unbeliever, and that's the only way we could live righteously. And because of that, I think there was a whole generation that felt rejected by the church. So in response to that, we swung the pendulum too far the other way, where it's like now we need to get everybody back into church. All those people we rejected in the 90s and the 2000s, we want them back in church now, and the only way to get them back in is to water down the gospel. So don't talk about sin. Don't confront anybody's behavior. Don't deal with anything. Just tell them to come to church, and God will love them, and everything will be okay. And that's not healthy either. We need to find the balance in the middle where we can live out our faith and not be afraid to declare the truth of God's word, but be so close in relationship with unbelievers that they'll receive the truth and love and they'll see the pathogen that is inside of us. Now, there needs to be balance in this as well. For example, if you're a recovering drug addict and you're still early in your recovery, you probably shouldn't be hanging out in close relationship with other drug addicts. I got clean 20 years ago, and when I got clean, I had to stop hanging out in a lot of places. 20 years later, now I can be around drug addicts, and I can love on them, and I have no temptation to get high. But I had to use wisdom when I was early in my recovery. If you're here, if you're a teenager and and you're uh, a susceptible teenager, don't put yourself in dangerous situations and don't follow people down the path that they're going, but you should be building close relationships with those that don't know Jesus. So I want to introduce a phrase, and I want this phrase to begin to permeate the culture of Kauai Bible Church. I want it to begin to permeate and, and even be a phrase that we begin to use more often and a phrase that begins to really develop how we think. And that phrase is living missionally. Living missionally. And this is how we're going to define it. And you can fill in the blanks there in your notes. To live missionally means to view each day as if you have been sent by God into a specific place in order to partner with Him to expand His kingdom. Let me read it again. Viewing each day as if you have been sent by God into a specific place in order to partner with Him to expand His kingdom. See, here's the problem. What we've done is we've taken the word mission, which means something broad, And we've narrowed it down to mean something really specific. So now if we use the word mission, people automatically think about going to another country. So if we're going to be on mission, that means we're going to go move to another country, live in a different culture, and share the gospel in that place. And and the problem with that is when we think about that, we just think of super Christians, right? There's just these amazing Christians that just live on a different realm than we do, and they're the ones that God calls to travel to different countries and preach the gospel. But the word mission was never supposed to be narrowed down just to refer to other countries. The word mission should refer to any specific place that God has you in. And so if we're going to embrace this challenge to live missionally, it's every day to get up and to say, God, where do you have me? And if you have me in this specific place, 
then how do you want me to partner with you today to expand your kingdom? And if you pray that prayer, God will answer it. And if you listen for the answer, God will begin to open doors. And you'll find yourself praying with coworkers. And maybe you've worked in the same place for 15 years and you've never told a single coworker you're a Christian. But if you take the challenge to live missionally, suddenly you'll find doors opening and you'll be praying with your coworkers and comforting them. Suddenly you'll find yourself in places building relationships with people that you never thought you would. Sharing the gospel in places that you didn't realize could be possible. Because every day you said, God, what is the specific place you have me in today? And how can I partner with you today to spread your kingdom? Is there somebody I can love? Is there somebody who's sick? Is there somebody who needs a hand? Is there somebody that just needs a friend to talk to? Where can I partner with you today to expand your kingdom? So what I really want to hammer home today is the why. We're going to keep digging into this outbreak concept over the next few weeks, but today I want to dig into the why. Why should we choose to live missionally? It's, it's inconvenient. It's difficult. It's going to cause sacrifice. It might, might give me problems at work. It might cause me to be viewed a different way at school. Why would we choose to live missionally? And I just want to share five thoughts about why. The first one is this. Why? Because the love of Christ compels us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 13 through 15. Paul writes this. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, what does that mean? It means if we're acting crazy, if we seem a little silly, if people think we're foolish, if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Other translations say, for the love of Christ compels us. I like that word compel better, so that's the one that I put in your blank in your notes. The love of Christ compels us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul's saying, listen, we concluded that if Jesus loved us so much that he would die for us, then I'm not going to live for myself anymore. I'm going to let the love of Jesus compel me. And everything that I do, I do because I am controlled by the love of God that's in my life. The Greek word that he uses there for compel literally means to be gripped in somebody's hand. So if you could imagine... Maybe when you're a little kid and your parents would do this, but they would just grab you by the back of the shirts and they would, this is where we're going. Come on, we're going over here. Now we're going over here. That when the love of Jesus gets a hold of you in that kind of a way, it's like he just grabs you by the back of the shirt and the love of Jesus says, today we're going over here so you can pray for these people. And now today you're going over here so you can love on these people. And today you're going over here so that you can share the gospel with this person in your life. The love of Jesus compels us. And so I pose this question. How could we have the love of Christ in our hearts and not allow it to cause us to love people the same way God does? How could we have the love of Jesus in our hearts and not allow it to cause us to love people the same way God does? And the answer to that question 
is because we allow the love of God to get bogged down a bunch, um, underneath a bunch of other things. And it gets lost under so many layers of other stuff in our lives that we don't let it compel us anymore. We still go to church and we still try to live right, but we're not compelled by it. And so it might be pain that's come into your life and that pain has covered the love of God. It might be just the stresses of everyday life. I got to do my job. I got to make money. I got to provide for the family. I got to pay the bills. I got to get the car to the mechanic and get the car working. And just the, 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 the stress of everyday life buries it. Or maybe it's comfort that buries it. We just get really comfortable in doing the things we like to do. And so it's buried the love of God. Or maybe it's distractions. We live in a very distracted age, lots of electronics and smartphones and so many different apps and so many different sources. And we can go to Facebook and we can read the news and we just get so distracted. Whatever the case may be, we've allowed the love of God to get buried. It's like that thing you can't find in your house and when you finally find it, it's in the corner of your closet. And the reason it was lost is because 10 other things are sitting on top of it. We need to rediscover the love of God in our lives. Jesus challenged us to return to our first love. And if we would allow the love of Jesus to come back to the surface and compel us, then we would begin to love people the way that God loves them. And the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he gave. He gave us his only son. That the love of God caused him to give and to serve and to sacrifice and to engage with people and to break outside of religious barriers and to do new things and be creative. That the love of Christ would compel us in that way. Second thing is this, why live missionally? Because the Great Commission commands us. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a if you feel like it. It's a command. Jesus had a plan for the outbreak of the gospel, and his plan was that he was going to live intimately with a small group of guys. He was going to pour himself into this small group of guys, and then this small group of guys would go and replicate themselves using the same process that Jesus used. And then another generation would replicate, and another generation until we get to today. And today, Jesus still wants us to do the same thing. Now, I know it says go and make disciples of all the nations. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor, you just said we didn't have to go to all the nations. You're right. The Greek word that Jesus actually speaks right there is ethnos. And at the time that Jesus was speaking it, ethnos wasn't referring to nations as defined by boundaries and governments. Ethnos referred to ethnicities. He said go to every ethnicity. Come on, let's be honest. We live on Kauai. We don't have to go very far to experience a bunch of different ethnicities. Right here on our island, we have so many ethnicities that we could go to and we could continue the same process of disciple-making that Jesus started. And disciple-making requires both evangelism and discipleship. 
We like to major on one or the other. But disciple-making requires both. If we do evangelism and we don't do any discipleship, then all we're doing is creating spiritual orphans. We go out and we share the gospel and we lead someone to Jesus and we pray a prayer with them and then we come back to church and we give each other high fives when we had no intention of actually discipling them. And we didn't teach them to obey anything that Jesus taught. But then on the flip side, we love to do discipleship without evangelism. And if you do discipleship without evangelism, all you're doing is recycling the same small group of people. They're doing their 20th Bible study. They're going to their 30th small group. But it's the same group of people. But when we do both, then we are fulfilling the command of Jesus that we are going to both evangelize and disciple. And if we continue to do that, then we will see the spread of the kingdom of God exactly as Jesus intended it. Why do we live missionally? The Holy Spirit empowers us. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus says, my Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and it's going to empower you. What is it going to empower you to do? To live missionally. And he says, you'll go to Jerusalem. Those are the people that are nearest to you. You'll go to Judea. Those are the people that are like you. You'll go to Samaria. Those are the people that are different than you. And you'll go to the remotest parts of the earth. Those are the people that are far away from you. He says, I will give you my spirit, and it will empower you to live missionally. So here's the thing. God did not deposit the Holy Spirit's power in our lives so that he could partner with what we wanted to do. He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we would partner with what He is doing. And so when He put His Holy Spirit inside of us, it wasn't just so that we could be victorious. It wasn't just so that we could be blessed. It wasn't just so that we could have wonderful Holy Spirit moments and be like, whoo, I have chicken skin. Come on, God is good right now. He gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could partner with His plan for spreading the kingdom around the world. And he's going to empower us to be in relationship with unbelievers and to live out our faith in a powerful way that they might receive the same pathogen we have. This next one is the one that's been messing me up for a few weeks now. And I know that God is doing this in my life right now and and I'm never going to be the same. But why live missionally? Because the reality of hell frightens us. The reality of hell frightens us. There's several passages in the New Testament that teach on hell, but I just wanted to pull out one for us today, and that is Revelation 14, 9 through 11. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name this gives us a picture that we don't like to talk about 
A picture that equates God with wrath and anger. A picture that shows people in torment forever and ever. A picture that shows a people who have no rest. And because we don't like this, what we're trying to do nowadays is we're trying to redefine hell so that we're not so uncomfortable with it. And so now we have universalism, which says we have this new theology now that eventually everybody's going to heaven. And hell is just kind of a temporary holding place just to, you know, transform people until they're ready to go to heaven. We have annihilationism now, which is a theology that, that, that says that people will go to hell for a little while, but then their souls will be annihilated so that they don't experience it anymore. And we say things like, how can a loving God send people to hell? And then we feel like we need to apologize for God because how dare God create a system where people would be tormented forever? And we think that somehow in our logic, we can come up with something better than God. And today, I want to challenge us to this. We shouldn't try to redefine hell to make ourselves more comfortable. We should allow the discomfort of hell to increase our desperation. Hell should make us so uncomfortable that we are desperate that we don't have to see more people go there. That we shouldn't be okay with it. You want to mess yourself up? Try this. Now, don't do it unless you want your life to be turned upside down. But try this. The next time you have a chance to go to the beach, I want you to go to the beach, bring your beach chair with you, set your beach chair up, sit there on the beach, and then I want you to look around the beach at everybody that's playing in the water, everyone that's surfing, everyone that's laying out and, 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 and sunbathing, and I just want you to look around and I want you to think to yourself, 70% of these people are going to be tormented forever and ever. And that should frighten us. And it should frighten us. It's not about us being comfortable with our own salvation. It's about us being uncomfortable with how many people might end up in hell. Every person that God brings into your life, you think to yourself, this person could be tormented forever and ever. But God has brought them into my life so that I could live missionally and I could spread the pathogen that's inside of me. The last one is this. Why do we live missionally? Because the needs of people move us. The needs of people move us. In Matthew 20, verse 32, it says, Jesus stopped and called them. Who's the them? It's a couple of blind guys that are crying out to Jesus. Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And look at verse 34, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sights and followed him. Jesus was moved by their need. What was their need? They needed to see. They were blind and he was moved by their human need. We should be moved by the needs of the people around us. You read through the Gospels and it says over and over again that Jesus was moved because he saw people that were discouraged and dispirited. Jesus was moved because he saw people that were tormented. It said Jesus wept over the city because they were a people without a shepherd. Jesus was moved by the needs of people. And we should be moved by the needs of people as well. I want to put this equation up here. Need plus awareness equals responsibility. Responsibility. 
If there's a need and God has made you aware of it, then you need to ask yourself, what am I responsible to do? You become aware of a need. God, did you make me aware of this because I need to start praying about this right now? God, did you make me aware of this because I need to start raising some money to help meet this need? God, did you make me aware of this because I'm supposed to reach out my hand and love on somebody by meeting them where they're at? God, did you make me aware of this because I need to put my arm around somebody and comfort them and be there for them? Need plus awareness equals responsibility. If God made you aware of it, you've got to ask yourself, what am I responsible to do? What am I responsible to do? And that if the love of Jesus is alive in our lives, then the needs of people will move us. I want to invite the worship team to come back up today. Will we take the challenge to begin to live missionally, to be a part of the outbreak of the gospel, that we would see the gospel begin to spread on Kauai in a way that we haven't seen in a long time? And then this island won't contain it. It'll be an outbreak, outbreak that jumps between the islands. It'll be an outbreak that jumps to other nations. It'll jump to the other islands of the Pacific. We'll find ourselves moving around the world because we accepted a challenge to live missionally in the specific place that God has put us. Will we let the love of Christ compel us? Will we let the Great Commission command us? Will we let the Holy Spirit empower us? Will we let the reality of hell frighten us? And will we let the needs of people move us? We are carriers of the kingdom of God. Every one of us, we carry the pathogen. But what are we doing to create the triangle of disease that we might spread the pathogen? I want you guys to hear this song. In fact, I don't even want you to stand up. I want you to stay seated because I just want you to sit and hear this song, and I want you to let the words of this song speak to you. They'll be up on the screen here in just a moment, but the song is called Driven by Love, and it's written by a gal named Lindy Conant, and Lindy Conant is a a worship leader. She's a singer. She's a songwriter, uh, but she serves in YWAM. In fact, she's based in Kona right here on the islands. And this is how she describes herself. She says, I'm a missionary who just happens to make music. And what happened is, is two years ago, she was leading worship at a conference in Kansas City. And the preacher that night was just preaching his guts out about sharing the gospel and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and sharing the love of God. And when the, when the preacher was done preaching, it was her responsibility to come up and lead one more song of worship at the end of the service. And she said when she got up there, she didn't know a single song that could articulate the atmosphere that was in the room. And so rather than trying to pick a song to sing, she just got up on stage and emptied herself and by the move of the Spirit began to sing a spontaneous song. And that spontaneous song that she sang that night is the chorus of this song, Driven by Love. It took two years for her to fully develop the song, and she just released it publicly last month. But this is what Lindy Conant said. 
She said, I have found in our worship times that as we are in his presence, we fall more in love with who he is. From there, we cannot help but be moved by how his love to impact the world around us. My prayer is that you meet Jesus, find his heart, and fall more in love with him. That's what happened to me while watching this song form over the last two years. So I want you to hear this song today. I want it to speak to your hearts. And as it speaks to your heart, I want you to consider the challenge of living missionally and what it means to be a part of the spread of the gospel. And what would an outbreak look like on Kauai? What, an, what would an outbreak look like in your hometown if God just happened to have you be in church with us today? Let this song speak to you.